0: The following is a conversation. It has the features of any conversation, such as imperfectly expressed thoughts, ill-considered opinions, and the notions of several sleep-deprived brains. Try not to get your stethoscope in a twist about it.
1: You guys, it's almost Thanksgiving break when this show comes out. Uh, the Etlers aren't sure what we're going to do with that week, though my wife brought up the bone-chilling prospect of attending a Doctor Who convention oh. in Chicagoland. I want to know a little bit about what your plans are.
2: You're not a turkey trot kind of guy, Dave?
1: Turkey trot? Or like a running thing? Yeah, no. <laughs> no. I prefer to stay relatively immobile, but I mean, that's just me.
2: My, my wife was adamant in college that she did not marry into a 5k running turkey trot family. Yeah. And she succeeded. Alex is a big runner. That's true. Is this your way of saying that he's very tall because he is very you tall? You
3: have long legs. Yeah. That's that helps.
2: Yeah, it's kind of a mess. It's yeah. kind of a mess. I'm like Bambi.
3: Well, I know, but I'm sure that makes you a great long-distance runner.
2: I am taking my family wow, skiing so. for Thanksgiving, which yeah. is somehow less and more athletic than running a 5K. I don't know why my wife thought that was better, but here we are.
1: I'm glad you have a chance to do that. That's very nice.
2: I do love the snow. Yeah.
3: yeah. Zach and I decided that we're not going home this year for Thanksgiving and Uh-oh. instead we are hoping to adopt the other people that aren't going home for Thanksgiving okay. and have them over to our house.
2: I like it. So, so wholesome. I like it. I, that's very
3: nice. Which is an open invitation.
2: I will be skiing. So, Feel free to come to that. Okay. Yeah.
3: Well, we're going to have <laughs> over. But thank you.
4: <laughs> I'm pretty sure that my mom and my sister and I are all going to do hot yoga on Thanksgiving. On Thanksgiving?
3: <laughs> with, yeah. with or without turkey? in the room
4: in oh in the room (laughs) it's probably plus minus at this point it might get a little stinky stinky there's nothing like sweat and turkey Mm. yeah aj i'll be in chicago for rsna oh you can go to the you can go to the doctor
1: who convention in the (laughs) chicago land (laughs) i can't remember the name of the town it's been a few years since we went but it's it's interesting we'll see you there all right Meandering
3: in the margins of medicine, it's the Shortcoat Podcast. Weird news, fresh views, helpful clues, and interviews. By students, for students. Subscribe to our weekly show at theshortcoat.com.
1: Welcome back to the Shortcoat Podcast. This is a show that gives you an inside look at medical school from the students drinking from that fire hose, a production of the University of Iowa. Carver College of Medicine. I'm Dave Vettler. With me today in the SCP studio, a special guest, Dr. Ilana Yerkowitz. She is co-director of the Stanford University Primary Care for Cancer Survivorship Program. She's a science journalist. She is the author of a new book entitled Fragmented, A Doctor's Quest to Piece Together American Healthcare. Welcome to the short Code, Dr. Yerkowitz.
5: Thanks. It's great to be here.
1: I want to introduce my co-host as well, some primary caregivers to my soul. She's been mashed to a creamy, lump-free delight. It's M1 Fallon Jung. Boopadoo. He is always moist and tender, never dry. It's M2 Jeff Goddard.
2: How I always wanted
1: to be described. He's a piping hot, sweet, and tangy slice of home. It's M4 Alex Belzer. Turkey mode. And his savory, buttery flavors are just the comfort we need. Joining us in the form of ones and zeros, it's M4 AJ Chowdhury.
0: Happy to be here. Dr. Urquiz, I'd
1: like to start by asking you to tell us about your book, Fragmented. My understanding is that you're trying to highlight the ways that communication doesn't happen in healthcare.
5: That's right. So This is my first book, and I wrote this book from the vantage point of being a practicing physician in the trenches for the last almost decade. and. The thesis of the book is that fragmentation, or what I define as the insertion of gaps into a patient's story by design, is the root cause of our system's failings. And this can happen in a multitude of ways. I write about how medical records are organized and disorganized, such that a patient's narrative doesn't have a clear beginning, middle, and end. I write about how a patient's care with the same physician who knows them well is fragmented among a different rotating cast of, of characters, and it's hard to get follow-up with the same physician. And I also write about cultural factors and mindsets that allow doctors to look at a slice of a patient's narrative and not the whole thing. And I wrote this book because it is the reality I've lived you know, since med school and certainly as a physician, and I felt like the public really didn't quite grasp how serious of a problem this is and how it really seems to underlie so many other things that go wrong in healthcare. And I write in the intro of the book that it's become a cliche at this point to say that healthcare is broken. And I believe more specifically, healthcare is fragmented and we need to get back to a place where we can see a patient's full narrative and they will get better care because
2: of it. Thank you for that. I first heard of your book on Wendy Dean's podcast, Moral Matters. I don't several, maybe a month or so ago, two months ago, mm-hmm. and it's a much
1: longer time ago than that. I have no idea how long <laughs> it's
2: been, and have since read it twice. And a, a very big fan of your book. We do. We have a professor here who tongue in cheek likes to say that when we're talking about global systems. We'll compare our healthcare system to to other systems like the Bismarck system or something like that, and he'll always say that the American healthcare system isn't really a system. It's a bunch of like fragmented pieces in a trench coat, pretending to be a healthcare system. And I feel like that was highlighted very well in your book. I did want to ask you about your, your practice, which you've talked about in your book, which is, I think a unique take on this issue.
5: Sure. And thank you for reading my book twice. I appreciate that for the kind words. So (laughs) I did have a bit of an atypical career path and a big part of why I took a twist and turn in my career path was to try to combat some of the fragmentation that I write about in the book. So I trained in internal medicine, that was my residency, and then I did a fellowship in hematology and oncology, got board certified in all three, and a typical career path at that point would have been joining an oncology practice, but I decided to open up a primary care practice for cancer patients and cancer survivors because I saw these gaps that my patients were falling through all the time where they would have cancer, they would go see their oncologist, They would get treatment and maybe their cancer would be cured or in remission. And to the oncologist's point of view, that was often seen as this unmitigated success story. The cancer is in remission, you're doing great. However, cancer and its therapies can cause a whole host of new problems. They can cause a premature menopause, osteoporosis, mood disorders, fatigue, and many other issues that often went unaddressed. And so the oncologist would then say, go back to see your primary care doctor. And the primary care doctor would often say, whoa, you know, I'm not trained in oncology, go back to see your oncologist. And these issues would not be addressed sometimes by anyone. And so I did the radical thing of finishing an oncology fellowship and then going back to a career in primary care because my epiphany at the end of fellowship was that the answer actually lay in primary care and not in oncology to some of these problems that I was trying to solve. And I really wanted to be that point person for a patient's, for all of their care, for the cancer piece, as well as all routine internal medicine issues that come up, preventative care, and I wanted to address it all in one place. And so I am a practicing primary care physician. The bulk of my patient panel does consist of cancer patients. However, I also do routine primary care. You know, I have patients that don't have a history of cancer. It has been a great privilege to try to be one solution to some of the problems that I write about in the book.
2: And I guess kind of the follow-up question, how do you feel like that's going? Like, do you feel like you're providing a, a solution to the problem? Do you, do you feel like your patients are having better care because of the solution you're providing?
5: I love it. And I can't speak for my patients, but I mean, I, they're very happy. <laughs> <laughs> I'll say that it's been a real privilege. I've been doing it for for two years now. You know, when I wrote the book, I think it was a couple months in, it was a lot fresher. It, it also shows you just the timeline of a book, how long it takes to go from finishing yeah. the book to, to actually publishing it and seeing it in print. So it's been two years, you know, I've accumulated a practice of hundreds of of cancer patients and survivors. And so often I hear that they're just stunned that this clinic exists. And I mean that in in, in a very positive way. It's something that they had been looking for that didn't exist previously. And I will also say that I work with a lot of residents now, and it seems to have lit a tiny fire that there are trainees that are now interested in a similar career path that previously wasn't really laid out. There's no fellowship in cancer survivorship. It's not a straightforward career path. But those who rotate in my clinic seem very interested. There's a couple people who are interested in doing something similar. And so I will be an evangelist for this model of care.
3: Awesome. So are there currently any other clinics that you know of, any other people that you've come into contact with that do anything similar to what you do? Or are you truly the only one right now? It's a good
5: question. So cancer survivorship is a growing field. And when I was in fellowship, honestly, I didn't know much about it. I didn't even know that it was a feasible career path. There are places that have dedicated cancer survivorship clinics. Most of them, though, are housed in the oncology world. You know, they're housed in the cancer center. There are programs that also have cancer survivorship housed within primary care. To my knowledge, I'm the only medical oncologist who works in a primary care setting providing cancer survivorship, you know, truly leveraging that background, both in oncology and primary care to provide all of this care in one place. And I will say my decision to open this clinic in primary care was intentional from this from the sense that patients who go through cancer, they often don't want to go back to the cancer center, right? I mean, it can cause PTSD just walking through those doors after they've experienced the worst traumas of their life. And so it was intentional for me to set up my practice elsewhere because, you know, you're trying to help people move forward and you help people move forward by being in a different location.
2: Yeah, I, I have been interested in medicine since I was a little kid. My father passed away when I was in an adolescence and at UCSF near, near where you're at. And yeah, I couldn't go back into a hospital for years, even though like, I was like, I, I want to do this for my life. But like just walking in the doors, like this is just not like emotionally, it's just not a place I could really bring myself to be in. And it took a long time yeah. to get over that. So I can appreciate that. Thank you.
4: It sounds like this <laughs> practice that you've set up really is an embodiment of the issue that you're highlighting, this fragmentation issue. And this is a little bit different, but I keep seeing like subspecialized internal medicine doctors like in rheumatology or cardiology or allergy immunology that start setting up their own primary care practices because they feel like they get a better sense for their like patient's entire health, as well as being the specialist for their specific problem. I don't know. It's a really interesting solution that I feel can be broadly applied to people with chronic diseases. Mm-hmm. Um in the subspecialty clinics I've been in, we rarely talk to their primary care provider. Sometimes we don't even see their notes. We don't see right. how they've been doing. It's, an, it's a mess.
2: It's kind of like, right. this, like this horseshoe model of, of specialization, like you get so specialized that you're just back in primary care, taking care of the people that have that condition. So
5: I once heard in my medical training that when you specialize, you learn more and more about less and less until you know absolutely everything about nothing. And, you know, it's facetious, right? Like, I don't want to insult my wonderful subspecialist colleagues and friends, you know, many of whom are amazing doctors, and I turn to regularly, but I do think that there needs to be a better model for this kind of comprehensive care. I don't like to say holistic care, because I feel like that word has kind of been hijacked by (laughs) sometimes the alternative medicine crowd. But I think there does need to be a better model and I will say I drew inspiration from geriatrics when I opened my clinic Mm. because a geriatrician is a primary care doctor with a special focus on a subset of a patient population and their subset of the patient population happens to be patients over 65. So I wanted to be a primary doctor for patients with cancer and I think there are other models that can follow suit in other specialties. Sometimes the specialist doesn't want to be a primary care doctor, right? I mean, I'm sure you've all worked with physicians who, you know, maybe work with a nephrologist and they are very happy to not handle vaccinations and routine preventative screening and want to send someone back to their primary care. But the primary care might not be trained in the nuances of that particular disease that the patient's suffering from. And I think it's good to hear that you guys are interested in it because I'm trying to also inspire the next generation. You know, I I think this is a way forward and there needs to be more clear career paths that are laid out for people who are interested in doing
3: both. Absolutely.
2: We're gonna shift gears just a little bit because obviously I loved your book. I read it twice, but there are a couple of quotes from it that I've been thinking about that. There's one here that you were talking about when we were talking about the free medical clinics that you had worked at as a physician and helping out the medical students that were providing those services there's a line that kind of popped out to me. I'm paraphrasing. So sorry, if I don't get the words quite right, but that it's better to get consistent care with the doctor that you can afford than sporadic care from the doctor that you can't. And I was thinking uh, kind of in this line that like, if you can have like that primary care doctor that you can actually get to, as opposed to the specialist that lives in the city that you can see, you know, only if there's this huge flare of the disease, obviously you're going to have better outcomes. Do you feel like that's something that you're able to provide with your, with your practice or how do you see that
5: I think the key that I was trying to convey in that chapter and with that quote is just the importance of follow up. Yeah. So even if you have a specialist who knows you as a patient very well, that specialist needs to see you again. Yeah. Right? I mean, there's very little of medicine now that's actually one and done. Meaning let's say you do a surgery and then you just check the wound and it's done. I mean, most of medical practice needs follow-up like you prescribe a new medication and then you need to check in on your patient and see how they're doing or you order some tests and then you need a follow-up appointment to go over the test results and talk about next steps so good medicine is not one and done good medicine involves an ongoing relationship between a patient and a, a provider who knows them and who knows their story and is not reinventing the wheel and coming in the middle every single time they see them and so, yes, in my practice, it is one of the great privileges that I can say things like, I will see you in a month. You know, I can order a new medication. I can be honest that there's sometimes trial and error involved. I don't know if this medication is going to help your neuropathy, let's say, from chemotherapy. I've had success in other patients. Let's give it a try. Make another appointment with me in, six, in, in four to six weeks, and we can check in and see how you're doing. And you're able to do so much more when you have that follow-up. Another thing that you can do really well is you're not trying to accomplish everything in one visit. And I think when you do that, you tend to be more risk averse. You know, you just try to, let's just do antibiotics just in case, because I don't know if I'm ever gonna see you again and I don't wanna miss something bad. And so when you have the luxury of follow-up, you can make uh, small stepwise incremental changes to improve somebody's health. You're also not overwhelming them in one visit or one encounter. And I think it's been transformational, honestly, to be able to do that for my patients and not just see them one time and never be able to see them again. And we've made progress, you know, even in some of my, what I would consider really tough cases, patients who have gone through a lot, let's just say, and have really struggled with previous doctors and just felt like they haven't been getting kind of the care that they need to move forward we have made progress and it's it's just so critical to be able to follow up for you that, you know, for you with your patients and for patients with the same person who knows them and is not coming in the middle of their story.
1: You mentioned not overloading a clinic visit, and this is something I've heard from other people as well. There's a part of training that, according to what I've heard, that seems to say, you know, you've got the patient in front of you, do it now. Mm -hmm. even if they may not be willing or able to have that conversation in that moment.
5: I think it just really speaks to the underlying problems of the system that medical students and trainees are being trained that way, Mm -hmm. because you're right. I mean, there's also the emotional and psychological components of addressing things when patients are not ready to address them. And you can sense that sometimes and dole out bad news in pieces over multiple visits but in order to do that you know just again and again what i can't emphasize enough is follow-up and follow-up has been i would say systematically deprioritized and downgraded you know in our healthcare system we reward one and done financially we reward one and done in terms of how we train doctors and prioritize specialists and we need to get to a place where we're talking about follow-up as the critical you know life-saving care that it really is
2: so this speaks to something that for me has been kind of like foundational to how i approach really everything in life but that the most important thing that you can do for the patient is to have a relationship with the patient and you've brought up some of the problems some of the disincentives to to doing this right the fact that you are as you spoke to in your book you're reimbursed more for that first visit than you are for the follow-up visit that <clears throat> we kind of expect that patients may not come back so we try to shove everything into that first visit that because of expenses sometimes the, this is the only time that you're going to be able to get the patient in the room if the patient can't afford to come back and you know that and the patient knows that yeah you end up shoving a lot more into that visit I guess I, I shouldn't ask you to try to fix the entire system in one day kind of kind of conversation. But like, how do we create a system that that incentivizes those relationships? Like personally, you know, having listened to people much smarter than I am for the last several years in medical school and, and before I'm, I've kind of like the capitated payment model. I think that seems reasonable, but I don't know. What what do you think is a good way to help incentivize these relationships with our patients, these long term real human relationships.
5: Yeah. First of all, I agree with you. I mean, the, the key is the relationship. And I really appreciate you saying that, you know, and, and and recognizing that at this stage in all of your training. That's wonderful. I just want to compliment you and kudos to you for saying that. It goes back to reimbursement and the financial model. And this is a very complicated question. And I don't think there's going to be you know, one system that I can just say here on the air that's going to be the best system to reimburse and prioritize follow-up. I think a capitated model is kind of, to me, it's a good form of care. And I write about in the book, a primary care clinic in particular, where they, they had the insurance pay up front for a patient's overall care, and they were not getting reimbursed fee-for-service, whatever the patient needed. I think I can say pretty clearly, though, that fee-for-service is not the way to go. And fee-for-service is still how we incentivize and reimburse most. The vast majority of healthcare organizations in this country are still reimbursed according to a fee-for-service model. And just to elaborate on that for your listeners a little bit more, you know who may not know exactly what that entails, in fee-for-service... The provider is getting paid or the healthcare organization is getting paid based on a service that they provide. What is a service? So a service can be something like a surgery or a procedure. A service can be a joint injection. A service can be a round of chemotherapy. Or in places like primary care, a service is the office visit, a face to face visit with the patient. What that means is that everything else, let's say for a primary care doctor is Uncompensated work that is not being reimbursed. So that includes all of those other factors that go into relationship building. It goes, it includes reviewing test results in your off time that you may have ordered on a patient that trickle in, you know, the next day when you're not seeing that per- person face to face. It includes making phone calls to patients. It includes sending messages to patients. It also includes doing all of the work of putting the pieces of the electronic medical record together, which we haven't yet talked about, but I suspect we will, that suck up so much of doctors' time because they're just so disorganized right now. And so all of that extra stuff is uncompensated work that physicians and healthcare organizations are not being paid for. Alternative models pay for outcomes. You know, They pay for value. So they pay, let's say, for how your patients do. And so then everything that you need to do as a physician to get your patients healthier is compensated for with more of an upfront lump sum. And so I write about in the book, a primary care model that did have this lump sum upfront from insurance companies and the remarkable care, frankly, that they were able to provide when they had the freedom to cap at a lower number of patients, they were able to cap at It was something like 300 patients compared to a typical 2,000 patients. And then do all of that extra in-between stuff. You know, they had a whole team of MAs who were able to reach out to the patients in-between visits. They were able to spend an hour on follow-up visits. They were able to spend two hours on new patient visits because they had that lump sum up front and they were not getting compensated every time they provided a service. And so there are models like that that work can we get the country as a whole to those sorts of models i think that is a much harder nut to crack it involves very complicated third parties and insurance companies who are incentivized to keep things uh, different and to keep things the way they are
1: short if this episode is worth listening to this far it's worth sharing so blast us on your socials and if you want a sticker for your trouble send us a screenshot thanks
2: we do need specialists, right? So I want the guy that's operating on my heart to be a heart person i want the surgeon who is performing that particular procedure to have done a lot of that procedure not necessarily just any old procedure right like i don't necessarily want somebody like so generalist that they've maybe done this twice in their life right i'm gonna have better outcomes with the person that has more experience with this one procedure therefore specialists are good but other countries it's more like 30 percent specialist 70 percent primary care and we're kind of flipped in in this country and so i was trying to think like how do we logistically how do we talk about doctors having a practice of 300 instead of 2000 when we have 300 million people in this country and not enough doctors you know we certainly don't have a a ratio of 300 to one that's not we're we're nowhere near that right and how to build a system where we could logistically do that by we're getting more people into primary care instead of specialists while still having the specialists that we need to do the things that specialists would be better at i don't necessarily have an answer it's just a logistical question that you brought up that i
5: absolutely and you're right if you're having a heart surgery you don't want your primary care to do your heart surgery yeah i mean that's it's you know just worth voicing that even if it sounds obvious so we need specialists right there's no doubt about that but we spend you know it's about a third of other developed countries in primary care in the united states and we have a shortage of primary care providers and it's only heading in the wrong direction You know, if you look at the list of medical students matching into residency, fewer people want to go into primary care. And I think there's so many reasons for this and I don't blame medical students. I mean, I didn't ask you guys what you're interested in, but I mean, raise your hand if you're interested in primary care. Great. Oh, wow. Okay. (laughs) Usually it's not that many. What about Um, you, AJ?
0: I have some comments on that if the time's appropriate.
5: Sure. I just wanted to say, I think the reasons for that are there's a lot of reasons that people don't want to go into primary care. And I don't blame them. You know, primary care doctors work more hours. They're compensated less. And we need to change so many different factors to build a robust primary care workforce. And I will also add, keep people in primary care. Another crisis that we don't, I don't think we talk about enough is people who are quitting, you know, people who go into primary care. And then after only five, 10 years in practice, they leave because they're burnt out and the rates of burnout are so high in primary
0: care. So I agree with all those points. Primary care is definitely not valued both at the economic level and in medical education. What I'd like to ask is, I guess, more specific to the field I'm going into. I'm going into interventional radiology. Um, Historically, it was known to be a hyper-specialized technician field. You get a consult in the hospital, you look at the image and you decide, do I put in a pick line or a tube, whatever, have you do the procedure. And then the patient never sees you and odds are they probably never saw you begin with because they're not facing you even inside of the angiosuite. suite. Um, and that's led to interventional radiology having a lot of his procedures co-opted by other fields. And so the field of interventional radiology has made a lot of strides to kind of take back and create more of a clinical model. So, for example, at Iowa, we have clinic patients that we see longitudinally and specifically with PAD, peripheral arterial disease, we even do a good amount of primary care, smoking cessation, counseling, teaching them how to manage their diabetes, providing them with resources for management of these uh, chronic conditions, especially if we're uh, sometimes the primary care provider for that specific issue because sometimes patients won't have that. And then uh, specifically with cancer, the liver oncology clinic is pretty robust with patients being followed up over a long period of time. And we do provide some services like resources for alcohol use, uh, cessation for transplant patients, so on and so forth. And I'm specifically interested in interventional oncology and within that also palliative care. There's so many things now with increased cancer survivorship, like you mentioned, that patients with cancer are getting things like spinal metastases and they require treatment for compression fractures from that which IR can help with. And so we're running into this scene where we're creating a more robust clinical service and now we're also providing a lot more primary care services Mm -hmm. to our patients. Where do you see something like an interventional radiologist or another procedural specialist How can they work better with their primary care physicians and especially for the ones that are already doing some of the things that primary care doctors do?
5: Yeah, I think that's a really good question. I'm also really excited to hear about your career plans. That's awesome. I think step number one is keeping the primary care doctor just in the loop. So when someone has a serious illness and they get sent to a specialist that specialist often ends up taking over a lot of things for either a limited amount of time or sometimes indefinitely. And the primary care doctor is not even aware of what's going on. And I can say, you know, this happens in my practice where then someone will come back to me and it's been like two years. And it's like, what, you know, what happened? Um, Where have you been? And a big part of this that, you know, I do think is worth talking about is sharing electronic medical records, because that is just a barrier in place that's, it is not your job. You know, you can't really solve that, right? As the provider who just wants to share what's what you've been doing for your patient with the primary care doctor. But we certainly really desperately need a better system of electronic medical record sharing with outside facilities so that if a person ends up getting care where their primary care doctor and their specialists are not in the same healthcare facility, they can still see one another's records and be able to pick up where they left off. I would say the other piece is that you hit on something important, which is that the primary care doctor doesn't necessarily need to do, you know, everything once they've, once they come, let's say into your world, into IR. And if you do some of the things like smoking cessation and alcohol cessation, that's primary care. Right. And if you end up taking over that piece of it, all the better. <laughs> I would say that's actually a really good thing. And I will elaborate on that a bit because. I would say historically, we have turned to primary care as sort of this stopgap and this fill in to do everything that a patient needs. And the result is that there was a recent study that came out that said if primary care doctors did everything they were tasked to do in a day, they would be working 26.7 hour days. I mean, try to wrap your head around that. So I think specialists taking over some of this stuff that, I mean, it's kind of questionable whose job is it? Is it a primary care doctor's job or is it a specialist's job? I think specialists, if you're focusing on peripheral arterial disease, smoking cessation is certainly within the realm of your specialty. And that is you know, part of the good care you should be providing patients. And so I think taking some of this stuff off primary doctor's plates is a good idea, but also keeping them, like mm-hmm. I said, in the loop through the electronic records or some other form of communication so they can end up you know picking up where they left off if that patient ends up going back to their primary care for routine ongoing care
1: so let's talk about the electronic record then so my understanding is that the you know epic is the one that every that a lot of people know at least mm-hmm. at teaching hospitals and other hospitals i think it's the biggest
2: they've got provider. about half market share yeah. i think
1: and then there's a bunch of smaller ones that are also you know, trying to do this work, they don't necessarily connect to each other, which is a big issue. I know that Epic has, I know from reading one of your articles, I think it was in uh, Undark, reading about Epic's care everywhere system, mm-hmm. which does try to provide that interoperability. Is it reasonable, though, to expect for-profit companies to open up data sharing with competing EHR systems, though?
5: Yes, <laughs> that's the short answer. <laughs> yes. Let me take one step back here. Yeah, we are making some progress. I do want to say that there is a, a department you know, within HHS. The federal government is working on this. There are many people that are working on this. But overall, the state of medical record keeping in the United States is that there are still many facilities that don't share patient records with outside doctor's offices or hospitals meaning when a patient is transferred, let's say even one hospital up the street, sometimes their providers lose access to all of their prior records, meaning you are making errors of both commission and omission. You are losing critical things and you can end up even repeating things like procedures and biopsies and tests, wasting money, time putting the patient in danger just because you don't have access to records.
1: Is the problem this interoperability or is it That they don't want to share.
5: It's both. Okay. So the way it was set, it it was set up that there were multiple electronic medical vendors, record keeping vendors. You're right. Epic has the biggest market share now, but there's actually hundreds of vendors that are involved in medical record keeping, and we used to use paper charts, right? And it was in 2009 that Congress authorized and funded legislation. It's called the High Tech Act that tried to stimulate. Paper charts to go to electronic records. This was a good thing, right? I mean, I want to say that pretty clearly. But there was no related stimulus and there was no related push from the federal government that required that any of these electronic vendors communicated with one another. Mm. So you ended up with, you know, these private companies that were all working somewhat independently and trying to change paper records to electronic charts. And then over time, we've gotten to this place where we recognize the importance of medical record sharing and it's completely siloed and so people might bring up you know d- uh, privacy as a reason not to share records and you know like the, the companies are incentivized financially to keep records you know in a sense to themselves um however it will probably save money in the long run i can't prove this this has never been studied but if you just think about what i mentioned procedures that are being duplicated, tests that are being duplicated, you know, treatments that are being duplicated because you don't have records and you're reinventing the wheel every single time. Uh, It's billions of dollars. I mean, that we're spending on patients. And again, not to mention what we're doing to their health. If you're reinventing the wheel, because you just literally don't have access to records or tests that were done previously. And I've done this myself in my own patients. Sometimes I just sleuth and I know i can't find a test result in a reasonable amount of time and so you just throw up your hands and end up repeating the test and so i think we should be incentivized to share data because it will save money in the long run it will improve patients health in the long run and another thing i will add is that patients really want it <laughs> sometimes it is brought up that well maybe my uh, you know privacy is very strong in this country right and i understand people might say, why should my interventional radiologist know about a UTI that I had 10 years ago? But when you survey patients, the surveys have shown pretty consistently that patients say, yes, I please, I want my radiologist to know about my UTI from 10 years ago because anyone who's been in contact with the healthcare system understands that it might be relevant and they might get better care um, when all of their doctors have access to all of their information. And so patients are clamoring for it.
2: Well,
1: you made it to the second break. You tolerate us. If you can, consider donating or buying a sticker or something. Visit the and help us do stuff without having to beg a dean for money.
2: Thanks. I was just thinking of another section you were talking about, work hours for residents in in the book at 1.0 and we were talking about the fact that the studies are dubious at best but the argument was less that i appreciate the fact that when we're talking about the emr topic that we're talking about the fiscal responsibility that we have but at the end of the day i think that there's a patient right issue that we need to address more and there's a morality question that is more important than just like has this been studied and shown to be like proven to save us money it's just is it the right thing to do and i think that I don't know. I, some things we take for granted that like, if it's the right thing to do, we would have already been doing it, but like, that's not true. Right. Like for example, until the 19, until the 1980s, we used to just ship people to other hospitals instead of taking care of them when they had emergent conditions because we think we couldn't, we didn't want to pay for it. Right. Um, we had to have a law that said you can't send patients to another hospital. If they have an emergency condition, you have to take care of them. We, we had to change that law. And I think that this is kind of one of those things where it's like, the system isn't correcting itself. I think maybe we, this is something that we say like, all right, guys, you have to do this. Now you have to be able to communicate this information. I, I don't know about 2023, but in 2022, right before I started medical school, I worked in a hospital and I would lose my mind every time I had to send a fax. Like it is 2022. (laughs) Why am I faxing information? (laughs) Why can't, why is there an app for this already? You know, and we've been talking for 10 years about is the best solution, giving the patient a USB with their healthcare records we're not even doing that so like even that if that isn't the best solution it's better than not doing anything at all i don't know it's just so I, this is just to say that i agree with you completely i, I just I,
5: I wrote an article in 2014 that i just stumbled upon recently that said i can't believe i'm using a fax machine in 2014. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I forgot that i wrote that uh, it, was, it was my last year of medical school i believe and then you know here we are 10 years later in the exact same situation and i do think the patient needs to be the ultimate keeper of that medical story like i really like that you brought up the usb no it is you know this is not a seamless solution we need a system that just talks to itself we yeah. need providers to be able to see other providers notes and it shouldn't be on the patient to transfer their own information when they might be critically ill right i mean that's that is asking too much of a patient and i just don't feel like that is ethically <laughs> kind of a robust long term solution But in the short term, yes, of course. I mean, my own solution to this problem has been to be extremely transparent with my patients and just hand them, you know, paper copies of everything, like print out test results while I'm sitting in clinic and hand it to them and just be really clear and say, you know, unfortunately in the fragmented medical system that we have, you are the only guaranteed source of continuity in your own care. Your other doctors should have this, but if they don't, Here's some important things to know about yourself.
1: That's really good. I, yeah. As a patient, I know I get these pieces of paper and I'm like, okay. You're like, I, what's paper? Yeah, I get, well, and you know, ultimately they may, they may lie in a folder somewhere they or they may get thrown away as like, okay, well, this is in my record. I don't really have to keep this i think the i don't most, think I've, i don't think anyone's ever said to
4: me keep this dave <laughs> yeah i think the most frustrating thing about all this to me is that it's not a technological limitation that we have here we yes. have the computing power to mm-hmm. be able to give everybody their complete medical record and put it in a centralized system it's just there's no political or financial will to do it at this moment yeah mm-hmm.
2: and i get that there's a limited like political capital but like at some point like not to be the crazy communist in the room that's usually not the hat that i wear in in these conversations but like i don't know like just the government can just take over epic and make everybody use epic i don't know we're actually communicating with one another
3: it seems to me that like hipaa is the privacy problem is that correct
2: Privacy HIPAA solution, but yeah, a, per-
3: a
5: perceived
3: <laughs> privacy
5: barrier, but it right. is not actually a privacy barrier. So it's more of an scapegoat. Record. It's a great question because that is the most common thing that people will bring up to say why we shouldn't share records. But HIPAA does not say that your other healthcare providers can't have access to your records as if the patient consents to it you know, HIPAA says that you shouldn't be snooping into a patient's chart if you're not taking care of them. If you're not their doctor and a celebrity comes into your hospital, you can't look into the patient's chart because they're a celebrity, right? I mean, that's what HIPAA says. Or you can't share information when you're, let's say you're in an elevator, you can't talk about a patient's case when there's other people in the elevator. But HIPAA does not actually say that you as a patient, you know, with your physicians should not be sharing your own medical
3: data. So for example, I just had to change my own medical records from one doctor to another. And it seems like different doctor's offices have different procedures for that because I called one doctor and they were like, oh yeah, I'll fax those over right now. I called the hospital and they were like, oh, well, we only do it as a, like basically they have to request them from us. You can't request them from us. And like, sometimes I have to sign a paper and sometimes I don't. And like, I don't really understand Where, like what's happening there, I guess.
5: Yeah, nobody does. Oh, okay. Okay. (laughs)
2: But
5: my answer to that is there is no system in place. Okay. It is an ad hoc, you know, people make up their own systems to solve this problem. And in my practice, I've actually kind of gone the gamut. You know, when I first started seeing new patients, I would say, sure, I will request records from your oncologist if they're outside of my institution. And then Maybe I would get records about 10% of the time, you know, generously. And then sometimes I would get records, but it would end up in a fax machine that was shared between 20 other doctors. And then I got 10% of those. Mm -hmm. And so they would just go missing all the time because we don't have a good system of sharing. And so then I actually changed my practice and I started asking patients to just bring me their records because is it fair? You know, no, I don't want to burden people but patients are the ones who are most incentivized to do it and to make sure it gets done properly and so my new practice is to tell people to call you know their previous doctor's office or hospital call the medical records department they're you know legally obligated to give you your own medical records if you request them in any format that you want them so paper or secure email or secure US- usb And then bring them to me when you see me for our visit and we can go through them together. That has been my practice. If you survey, you know, 10 different doctors, you're going to get 10 different answers.
3: I don't even know that people necessarily know that because that like... I feel like you could probably deduce that, but it's not obvious by no, any it's means. certainly not.
1: Yeah. Not from yeah. my perspective as a patient. Yeah.
3: It's yeah. Legal, One thing that... Oh,
5: sorry. You have a legal right, yes, to be able to see and access your medical records.
2: Ah. So, I'm so sorry to do this. Some of us have some activities like required activities here in a few minutes. So we're gonna have to cut this conversation yep. short. I could literally talk to you for hours. I didn't even get through half of the questions I wanted to ask, but. Sorry, um, I might've talked too much. No, I, every word was a good thing. So thank you so much for taking the time to to talk with us today. And I will probably follow up with a lot of these questions because mm-hmm. you're a fascinating person to listen to. So.
3: Maybe we could have you on again because I wasn't really halfway part through two. what I had. <laughs> it's, it's up to
5: you guys. If you wanna do a part two, I'm happy to do it.
2: Oh, mm-hmm. thrilling, yeah, I would definitely. Sorry, Dave. Go ahead. Yeah, cool.
1: I I <laughs> wanted to know before before we let these guys go off to their non-podcasting lives. Is there anybody in the world doing this well? You know, this seems to. We're talking about this like a uniquely American problem. Hmm. Is that the case?
5: There are places that do it better. The Netherlands is a place that does it better.
3: Netherlands
1: always see. come up.
3: The Netherlands. They're we, small yeah. and homogeneous, and, and, and
2: <laughs> they have a system that I feel like is more. Sorry, this is too long of a conversation, but they have a system that's a little bit easier to apply to ours. Like when people talk about Scandinavian countries, it's like they're a little bit too far away from our current system to really feasibly convince people to do it. But I feel like the Netherlands, every time I look at their system, like just a few tweaks and we're like almost to a, a, a system that works. I don't know. Sorry.
5: I think, you know, we're a bigger country. We have been incentivized differently. People feel maybe more strongly about privacy and there there might be other factors, many factors going on here that have gotten us to the place that we are. So I would say the short answer is, yeah, there are other places that are doing it better. We might end up needing just our own model, though, because we have to take into account you know, all of the factors that have got us here you know, where we are. We can't just start from scratch. We're going to have to tinker with the system that we have.
1: Well, yeah, that makes a good deal of sense. Um, well, listen, once again, your book is called Fragmented, A Doctor's Quest to Piece Together. American Healthcare. You can find out more about that at your website, ilanayurkowitz.com. I'm going to put a link in the show notes over at theshortcoat.com so that you can, you know, find her and her work. Really, thank you for being on the show with us today, Dr. Yurkowitz.
5: Thank you. I really appreciate the, the conversation and the great questions.
1: Thank you to Jeff for producing the show and Fallon and Alex and AJ for joining us in the conversation.
2: It was an honor.
3: Love to be here. It's a pleasure.
1: This week's editor is AJ Chowdhury and what kind of dry, tasteless bird would I be if I didn't thank you, shortcuts, for making us part of your week? If you're new here and you like what you heard today, follow the show wherever fine podcasts are available. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, you know the deal the show is made possible by a generous donation by Carver college of medicine, student government and ongoing support from the writing and humanities program. Our music is by Dr. Vox and Katmosphere. I'm Dave Etler saying, don't let the bastards get you down. Talk to you in one week. Hi, short coats. Look, life in medical education, life in America, life in the world is often difficult and I often wish I could help. All I have is this podcast, but in my wildest dreams, you have the support you need to lead a life of your choosing. You deserve to be happy, healthy, and successful in whatever ways you define those words. So if you need support because you've experienced racism, discrimination, harassment, mental health crises, I want you to be able to get the help that you need